answer. And this reality blew me away this week when I began to think through what this means, that Jesus is our intercessor. Have you ever had it that you've read a part of scripture that you're really familiar with, but you realize that you've never understood the implications of it before? That happened to me this past week. I'm pretty familiar with Hebrews. I preached through it a number of years ago. I've studied it. I've even memorized today's passage some time ago. But this week, a verse that I'd read through countless times, Hebrews 7, verse 25, uh, stunned me as I felt like I began to understand it for the first time. And I hope it stuns you as well. The reality of this verse holds the most incredible hope if you are deeply worried for something, if you are anxious about the future. This verse can set aside forever your distress over your failure to be a good Christian. Perfect forever. Your sense that God the point is of what we are saying is this: you and you need to get we your act do together. have such a high priest, and I who hope sat that you will down leave here at the today right hand of the throne of the Majesty in future is secure, and who serves in the sanctuary. That God's affirmation the of you is not in jeopardy by the Lord, and that you can be freed forever from the guilt the that comes of their failures to perform seated. as a Christian ought to perform. This is what's wrapped up in the reality that Jesus is our intercessor. An intercessor is somebody who intercedes, who goes between, who represents the, uh, the interests of one party to another. A defense lawyer is, ideally, an intercessor, speaking for the interests of the defendant. Parents, when you speak to the teacher or to the coach on behalf of your children, you are your child's intercessor interceding with the teacher for your child. And we use this term intercede, intercession, with respect to prayer. In prayer, we worship, we pray for ourselves, but there is a kind of prayer called intercession, when we pray for the needs of someone else. Lord, heal so-and-so. Comfort so-and-so in their grief. Give courage to the persecuted Christians in another country. Bring hope and faith out of this disaster that has struck somewhere in the world. Lord, don't forsake your church. Bring renewal. Bring life. In fact, most of our praying, I suspect, is of this kind. It is intercessory prayer. And it's in this context that the Bible calls Jesus an intercessor. In two particular passages of Scripture... One is Romans chapter 8, verse 34, which reads, Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. And the other one is Hebrews 7, verse 25, the verse I referred to earlier, the one that struck me so deeply this week. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost, or to save completely, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is an intercessor. He is talking to God the Father on our behalf. More simply put, Jesus is praying for us. Now, the context for this statement that the writer of Hebrews makes is that Jesus' priesthood, the whole argument in Hebrews is that Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Jewish priesthood. Okay, so here's some Hebrews for you. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians 
who were faced with probable persecution and were considering avoiding that persecution, persecution by reverting back to their Old Testament Judaism. And the sustained argument of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus both fulfills and surpasses all the things that were a part of their Old Testament Jewish heritage. Chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is greater than angels. For God never testified about any angel that they were his son. And even though the angels mediated the law to the people, Jesus came and fulfilled the law and died as a human being. Chapter 3, Jesus is greater than Moses. Who was faithful as a servant of God, Jesus was faithful as a son of God. Chapters 3 and 4, Jesus is greater than the promised land. For the rest that the land represented was incomplete, it was temporary. But there is a Sabbath rest that is coming, that is eternal and complete. And it's Jesus who brings his people to that rest. Chapters 8 and 9, Jesus the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant relationship. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. It is the shadow of which Jesus is the substance. Chapters 9 and 10, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. For the sacrifices of animals had to be repeated daily and yearly, and anyway, the blood of animals have no power to actually take away sin. They were symbols, they were pictures, pointing to the supreme, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus for the sins of people. Chapter 11, the faith of the Old Testament heroes was in some ways less than the faith of the New Testament Christians. For in Jesus, we've seen the object of our faith. We've seen the picture, the whole picture, which Abraham and Moses and David never saw fully. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't you see that everything the Old Testament was about, everything that your heritage pointed to, everything God was doing, everything Abraham and Moses and David had only a glimpse of, is fulfilled in Jesus. Everything they longed for in the Old Testament, you have. Don't leave it and return. It'd be like Lazarus having been raised to life by the command of Jesus if he decided to stay in the tomb, wrapped in his grave clothes because he couldn't stand the sunlight outside the tomb. It would be like that. And the longest single section of Hebrews is chapter 4, verse 15, into chapter 8, part of which was our text today. And this longest section of the book reveals Jesus as infinitely superior to the ministry of the Old Testament priests. And so that's where we're landing today. The Old Testament Israelites had an order of priests. Okay, they were made up of the family line, the descendants of Aaron. And the priest's role was to intercede for the people to God and to intercede for God to the people. God's absolute holiness and perfect justice meant that it was not only inappropriate, but actually dangerous for sinful people to approach God physically. God's very presence, represented by the Ark of the Covenant, dwelt among the people in the tabernacle and later in the temple, but people could not just simply waltz to where the Ark was and worship. There were ritual purifications to be undergone. There were sacrifices for sin that had to be regularly made to express the reality that sin rendered mankind unfit and unable to be face-to-face -face with God. And so the priest's job was to intercede for them, to go between. It was the priests who, on God's behalf, received the offerings and the sacrifices that the people made. 
It was the priests who, on behalf of God, blessed the people and spoke God's word of blessing to them. It was the high priest, sorry, and over the priests was the high priest, descended in a straight line from Aaron himself, a hereditary succession from firstborn son, the firstborn son. And it was his role to offer incense and to offer prayers on behalf of the people and to bring the sacrifices of the people to God. And on the once-a-year Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the very presence of God in the most holy place to bring the blood of the sacrifice to the Ark of the Covenant. And this day, the Day of Atonement, was the convergence of all of the worship of the whole year for the people of Israel. It was the summary of all the sacrifices made in that year. It was on the Day of Atonement that the sins of the people were really said to be forgiven on that day. That the people, as a people, were made right with God in the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, you may have heard of that, was the high holy day of the people of Israel. And yet, even before making atonement for the sins of the people on this Day of Atonement, there was an elaborate ritual by which the priest himself had to have his own sins atoned for. So that it would be a sinless priest who made intercession for the people. All of that is the context for Hebrews chapter 7. And Jesus, like Aaron and the other high priests, was appointed by God, was human, and thus could represent the people to God. In other words, his priesthood was a legitimate priesthood. But Jesus, unlike the priests, did not offer the sacrifices of animals that proved unable really to deal with sin, but offered himself his divine and perfect life as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And Jesus, unlike the priests, did not have to offer annual sacrifices, daily sacrifices, because his own death was the complete sacrifice after which no more sacrifice for sin was needed. And Jesus, unlike the priests, did not have to atone for his own sins first before being able to atone for the sins of the people. And Jesus, unlike the priests, doesn't die and need a replacement. But because of his resurrection and eternal life, he is a permanent, perfect priest. The priestly office is perfected, completed, finalized in Jesus. And all of that is the argument of this section in the book of Hebrews. And all of that is the context for what I want to talk with you about today. It is as a priest that Jesus intercedes for us. And so the picture in Hebrews is not one of a sinful, imperfect, temporary priest whose ministry is based around a merely symbolic animal sacrifice and whose ministry anyway will be cut short by death so that a replacement needs to be found. Hebrews shows us, and please hear this, Hebrews shows us deity himself, the eternal, perfect, divine son of the eternal father, victorious over death and exalted eternally at God the Father's right hand, interceding for us, praying for us on the basis of the supremely effective sacrifice of his own perfect life. Jesus is interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for you. Jesus is praying for you. 
Now, there are some implications of this reality, some of which are stated outright in the text and in the other verse that I quoted from Romans chapter 8. And the first implication is this. God is for us. God is for us. There's a common belief, and maybe you have this belief, subconscious, that Jesus is trying to get God to do something that God isn't otherwise willing to do. That Jesus' intercession is his preventing God from doing what God really wants to do, that is, punish us for our sins. And that Jesus is persuading God to do what God doesn't really want to do, that is, offer forgiveness and show us mercy. That God is angry, and if Jesus wasn't there as a restraining influence on God, God would smoke us in his anger. But the truth is that God wants to forgive, that God loves and shows mercy, because love is his nature. And that God actually sent his son to die for us. That it was God who raised Jesus to life for a justification, according to Romans chapter 4. That it was God who exalted Jesus to his own right hand. And if Jesus is interceding for us there, it's because God has placed him there in the role of intercessor. That's exactly the point of the text of Romans chapter 8. And I want to spend a couple of minutes there because this is, this is life-giving. Romans 8 begins with this life-giving declaration. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Now, does that mean... God still does condemn us, but it's a good thing Jesus is there. No, there is no condemnation, not even in the heart of God, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8 traces out that thought. That we have the Holy Spirit, verse 11. We are God's children, verse 15. Our, our complete, full redemption is coming, verse 24. That even though we pray badly, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us also, verse 26. That God's plan is to use all things for our good as God conforms us to the image of his son Jesus and to glorify us, verses 28 to 30. Now think of that. God guarantees our glorification. God guarantees our glorification. And then Romans 8 asks this rhetorical question. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer, of course, is no one. And it goes on to really push against this idea that there's condemnation. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 32. Seriously, the Bible is asking, God gave his son so that we could be like Jesus and be glorified. Do you think that he's going to hold back on mercy, on affirmation? God has already gone the distance. How could you possibly entertain the thought that maybe God is not for you? Romans 8 goes on. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. If in Christ God has justified, said, I consider you perfectly innocent, righteous, who can say different? And here Romans echoes what Isaiah, the prophet, wrote when he said, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. 
In other words, your accusers, those who condemn you, they will melt away, they will disappear. If God declares you innocent, no amount of prosecution or condemnation can bring a verdict of guilty. And Romans 8 goes on, really driving home a point here. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's one of our verses for today. Who is against you? Who will stand up to judge you? Of the three who make up the Trinity, two of them are praying to the third one. Is God against you? He gave Jesus for you. Is Jesus going to condemn you? He died for you. He rose for your justification and is interceding now for you. Talking to God the Father about you. Seeking your good. God is for us. God is on your side. He no longer has to be appeased. His favor no longer has to be earned. There's nothing you can do to make him proud of you. He already loves you and is proud of you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that Jesus is your intercessor means, first of all, that God is for you. The second implication is stated outright in the Hebrews passage. He is able to save to the uttermost, which is what the word means, or to save completely those who draw near to God through him. And again, this does not imply that he's able, doesn't imply he can, he's able to, but he might not. But it means that he's able to, single-handedly, despite all of the factors working against it. The point is that Jesus' priesthood, Jesus' intercession, is a perfectly effective intercession. And again, the very same point is made in Romans chapter 8. Except this time it's talking about God the Father. Right after it says that all things work together for those who not only love God but are called by him, Romans 8 goes on to say that those God predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. God's not going to bring us halfway. And again, Romans 8, as we've already read, goes on to say, do you think that God's going to backtrack and condemn after he has already justified you and committed to glorify you? Having given his son for you, do you think he's going to stop short? Jesus died and rose again and is interceding for you. Can his intercession be ineffective? And Romans 8 ends with these beautiful, familiar words. I am sure, I'm convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor rulers or things present nor to come, neither height nor depth nor anything all, and by the way, that includes you, <laughs> Nothing else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If Jesus has picked you up in order to carry you to his Father, he's not going to put you down before his journey is complete. He's able to save you completely, to save you to the uttermost. This is incredible. Have you ever wondered if you were ever going to be saved completely? Yeah, you maybe haven't thought it in those words exactly, but you ever, have you ever been frustrated at what you perceive as your own lack of growth? You're stumbling over something again. Chris Rice sings these great words. You think I'd have it down by now. I've been practicing for 30 years. 
I should have walked a thousand miles. What, what am I still doing here? Reaching out for that same old piece of forbidden fruit. I slip and fall and I knock my halo loose. Somebody tell me, what's a boy supposed to do? Have you ever found yourself in that spot? What am I still doing here? I should have grown way beyond where I am right now. Have you ever thought, I'll never get there? And you know what? Left to our own effort, we'd never get there. But Jesus is interceding for you and is able to save you completely, to save you to the uttermost. And to the uttermost, by the way, also has a time element to it, which means he's able to see it through to the end. He's not going to quit before his job is done. And there are two reasons why Jesus is able to save you to the uttermost, to save you completely. One reason is stated in the text, and one is implied in what the Bible says about prayer, about the nature of intercession and prayer. But first, Jesus is able to save you completely because he lives forever. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And by the way, let me add this, those who draw near to God through Jesus, that is a salvation thing. That is not Jesus is able to save you provided every day you try to spend some time with God or you have regular devotions. This is a salvation text. If you are a Christian, that means you've come to God in Christ. When you got saved, you said, Lord, Jesus died for me to forgive my sins. I accept his sacrifice. I am now a Christian. My life is yours. It doesn't mean provided you, are, you measure up in your daily drawing near no, if you have drawn near to Christ, he is able to save you completely. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans 8, who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Again, Jesus' intercession linked to his resurrection, his eternal life. Jesus' work as an intercessor is made effective because of his resurrection and eternal life. That is, nothing can cut his intercession short. He will not stop again before his work is done. And John Piper says of this text, our salvation is as secure as Christ's work is indestructible. Jesus is able to save completely because his work of intercession is eternal, ongoing. He always lives the second reason Jesus is able to save to the uttermost completely is because of the nature of prayer. And this is what really grabbed me this week. The Bible says a lot of things about prayer and about God's response to prayer. Things that enable us to pray with some confidence. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He said, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And this verse I love, 1 John, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, toward God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we asked of him. But there's a problem for us too, isn't there? Because the Bible doesn't make God a genie and you just rub the prayer lamp and God just grants wishes. 
God's word tempers promises like this with other statements about prayer, like James 4. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your, your passions. Isaiah chapter 1, denouncing this false and godless religious activity of the Israelites and the oppression of the poor by the religious leaders, God then says to them, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Proverbs chapter 1, God says, because I've called and you've refused to listen, because you've ignored all my counsel, well, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. And so our confidence in prayer is sometimes checked. Am I praying God's will? Am I praying from impure motives? Is there any unconfessed sin in my life? And so on. Are our prayers effective? But Jesus, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. It's right there. Jesus is absolutely sinless. Jesus knows perfectly the heart and the desires and the will of God for you. Jesus prays with perfect knowledge of you, of your circumstances, of your character, and of what it is you need. God, Jesus talks to his Father in the context of the reality that God has guaranteed that all things will work together for your good. Will God ever ever withhold from Jesus the answer to Jesus' intercession for you. I'm going to say something now, and I'm going to say it three times. Okay? Jesus is praying for you. God loves you and has an absolutely perfect perspective, perfect knowledge of who you are, what your life is, and what is best for you. Jesus always prays in accordance with the loving heart and perfect will of God for you. God always answers Jesus' prayer. Jesus is praying for you. God loves you and has an absolutely perfect perspective, perfect knowledge of who you are, what your life is, and what is best for you. Jesus always prays in accordance with the loving heart and the perfect will of God for you. God always answers Jesus' prayer. Do you hear that? Jesus is praying for you. God loves you and has an absolutely perfect perspective, perfect knowledge of who you are, what your life is, and what is best for you. Jesus always prays in accordance with the loving heart and the perfect will of God for you. God always answers Jesus' prayer. This is why Jesus is able to save you completely. Because his intercession is perfect and effective. Because God answers Jesus' prayers for you. Jesus intercedes for you. This is incredible. This gives such hope. It reminds us that our own performance is not the measure of the hope of our salvation. It inspires us to press on, not to believe that our stumblings cripple us. It allows us to live in response to his grace, 
not trying to move towards his grace and to earn it. Let me ask you this today. Are you in crisis? Are you sick? Are you anxious for your future? Is there any circumstance in your life that causes you pain or worry or uncertainty? Jesus is praying for you. He knows what you need. And he will receive what he asks for. Are you conscious of your failures? Are you sure that you have let God and other people down? Are you sure that when you stand before God at the end of your life, that he will shake his head in disappointment and only let you in against his better judgment because Jesus talked him into it? Jesus is praying for you and he is able to save you completely. Who is he who condemns? Do you condemn yourself? God has justified you. Jesus is interceding for you. What did you bring with you to the service this morning? Tiredness? Fear? Guilt? Spiritual hunger? Consciousness of your failings this week? Uncertainty as to God's feelings toward you? Certainty that unless you smarten up, you and your family and the church will all fizzle out? God is not waiting on your performance. Jesus is praying for you. God loves you and has an absolutely perfect perspective, perfect knowledge of who you are, what your life is, and what is best for you. Jesus always prays in perfect accordance with the perfect will and the loving heart of God. And God always answers Jesus' prayer. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This verse holds the most incredible hope if you are deeply worried by something or if you are anxious for your future. This verse can set aside forever your distress over your failure to be a good Christian, your sense that God is disappointed with you and that you need to get your act together. This truth can instill a deep confidence that your future is secure, that God's affirmation of you is not in jeopardy, and that you can be freed forever from the guilt that comes with failures to perform as a Christian ought to perform. And we all know that guilt, don't we? That's probably the hardest thing for us to let go of. You can be freed forever from that. All of this is what it means that Jesus is your intercessor. I'm going to close both this message and the sermon by singing a song. Um, and have a few people who are going to help me. And, uh, and the words of this song are incredible. This is a song about Jesus, our priest, what he has done and is doing in our reality because of it. It's called Before the Throne of God Above.
from here this morning, I often say, may you go with confidence in the knowledge that God is with you, but may you go with the confidence, the hope, the knowledge that Jesus Christ himself is praying for you. That whatever happens to you this week, whatever comes to you Monday through Friday, Jesus is praying for you. If you sin, there is an advocate before the Father. At any given moment of your week, Jesus is praying for you. And that he is able to bring to completion his work and what he is doing. And so with that, I say from the bottom of my heart, go in peace. The Lord is with you.
Amen and amen.